we are wrapping up a series that we have been in for 10 weeks. 10 weeks we've preached through the book of James. And um, it has been, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this 10-week journey. It's been interesting. We've talked about, we've talked about God, James in a context of his design for faith. And each week we handled it, what we called a blueprint plan. And so James is full of power and correction, and it's very blunt, but it's also a very practical book as well. And so we've enjoyed this process. I've enjoyed this process. I don't know about you, but it's left me a little undone in some areas of my life that I'm like, okay, God, I need your help to work through this area, through this area. And it's, um, it's been some challenges over the last 10 weeks, and, and our exchange groups that are meeting during a week have been breaking down and talking, having great conversations concerning this mess, these messages in this series. And so it's exciting. As we bring this series to an end, Today, week 10, we're talking about, see, James is all about God's design for faith. And so in week 10, we're talking about the blueprint plan to extreme faith. James chapter 5, is the last half of James chapter 5 is filled with some, some powerful truth and, and some, some challenging word. And so we're talking today about extreme faith. So through this 10 weeks in these five chapters, James has covered a lot of territory, and he saves, I think, one of the most controversial portions of Scripture for the last, as we talk about divine healing. So today we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about faith, and we're going to talk about healing, and we're going to talk about this in, in, in context of our lives today, because I believe that this idea of healing hits home for many many who are dealing with chronic illnesses, many who have prayed for someone who didn't get well, or, or, know, or, or those that struggle with does, knowing, does God still do more miracles today? And so one of those areas that we don't totally understand, but it's always an area that I put trust in God, is God always does what God wants to do, and healing and miracles are no different in that in that capacity. And so the first thing I want to do is share with you my, my thoughts on healing so that you can understand context. I'm all about context and background. So you can understand context and background. I believe that God heals in three ways. I believe that God heals instantaneously, as we have found many references of that in Scripture. I have See, I believe that God heals gradually over the course of time, as we have also seen that in Scripture. He says, "He said to one, go, your faith has made you well. And if you study that, that instance of healing, you'll see that that was more of a gradual healing. And then I, I also believe, finally, that God heals in death. And while that's not the most popular thought process when it comes to healing. It is a very legitimate healing because the Bible says that upon that time, death has lost its sting. There is no victory in death. We inherit a new body. And so that is a sense of healing. And so most people would suggest, and I, I don't fall into this category, but a lot of people would suggest that when someone has lost a battle with whether it's cancer or any other kind of disease that has then taken their lives, they would use the language that I just, that I just snuck in there and said, they have lost their battle. But my perspective, and maybe it's the optimistic perspective that I have as my personality, my perspective is that they have won their victory over 
cancer or whatever it was that had taken their life. Because ultimately, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And not that I don't love all of y'all, but I would so much rather be present with Christ than in this world. And so to ultimately receive that prize is what we all attain, desire to attain anyway. And so that's, that's my thought process on healing. And so we can, if you want to have a deeper discussion about that, I can give you, I can talk to you more biblically about that. Um, but in the effort of saving time and getting to what James is talking about, I just wanted to share that with you. So James chapter 5, verse number 13. I'm going to read from 13 to 20. Uh, it'll be up on the screen, or you can open your device to it, or you can turn your Bible to it, whatever it is that you have with you. But James chapter 5, starting in verse number 13, the Bible says, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Verse number 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet we, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. That's the Word of God according to James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. What's interesting that we find there is we find him talking about healing. We find him talking about sin. And we find him talking about those that have walked away from God. And, and he lumps them all into the context of healing. So in, in, in reading James, you can, you can deduce a certain couple of things that there, it takes some things in order to see God's healing take place in our lives. And understand when that word healing is used, it is literally means to be made whole. Okay, it means to be made whole. It's not necessarily refer, referencing always a healing of sickness. It is to be made whole. When Peter described it, when he said that, that by the stripes of Jesus Christ we are healed, that word means we meant is the same word that James uses. It means we may are made whole. We are made complete. That's why I suggest that even in death, you are actually made complete. Because what was then broken, what was then messed up, what was then hurting, what then took life from you is now gone and you are complete again. And so there's some things that you can, you can break down in this passage of Scripture. And this is something we've been doing every week so we can understand it a little bit better. Is... In the very beginning, when he says in verse number 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. But then the second half of that verse is what I want to look at for a minute. He says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. 
I was recently watching a video, as recently as in last night, I was watching a video by a, a very, very famous preacher named Francis Chan, and he was talking about his encounter with some Jehovah Witnesses, how they would come to, they came to him and they wanted to talk to him, and of course his suggestion was like, absolutely I want to talk to you, I have some things I want to, to share with you as well, and, and so they were, he says, can I, and he so begin to tell a story, how can I just, can I just tell you about some things that God has been doing in my life lately, can I tell you about some things that I've prayed that he is then he's then answered prayer and he goes on to they go they then interrupt him and say well you know God doesn't heal every hear everyone's prayer and 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 Francis Chan actually actually agrees with them and says no you know what you're right God doesn't heal everyone's prayer and then he goes on to list many different instances in scripture where God has turned his ear away from people based on sin in their lifestyle based on grumbling in in the in the community in the church based on a lot of different things he's he's not heard their prayers and James even echoes that in the second half of verse verse 16 when he says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results the reality is this The truth is this, God does not, it's the difference between listening and hearing. I've shared this before, there's a difference between listening and hearing. I listen to what everyone says, but I don't always hear what they're saying. Listening means there's a noise going on, and I realize that noise is being directed towards me, but I don't necessarily hear what was being said. This is very prevalent in marriage, and if not in yours, then mentor me because it is in mine. Where my wife will speak to me and she'll say things and she'll give, tell me what I need to do or tell me something's going on. And, and I, know I'm he- I know she's speaking, but then shortly after that conversation, I will say, hey, so what are we doing here? And she'll just look at me and like, I just told you that. So some people would call it selective listening. But the reality is there's a difference between listening and hearing. And so when James is saying that the earnest, let me find it again, second half of verse, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. There's certain things that have to be found in the way you pray in order for God to be able to hear. No, it's not in the eloquence, the elegance of your speech. No, it's not in the intelligence of what you know in Scripture, but it's actually found in the heart of who you are. So let's look at that phrase for just a moment. When it says earnest prayer. This word in the original context, in the original language, literally means working in a situation which brings it from one stage, meaning one point, to the next. It's kind of like an electrical current. It energizes a wire, bringing it to a shining light bulb. So the earnest prayer means this, 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 powerful prayer that is coming out of you has the ability to energize God. Yes, it does. It has the ability to turn, to cause God to turn his ear towards what you're saying. Because here's the reality. If you're going to live your life Monday through Saturday, however it is you choose, not honoring God with no righteousness, no, no desire to live for him, but then when you're in deep need, begin to pray, there's a chance, and I would suggest probably a pretty good chance that he may not necessarily hear you. Because the, the next part of that process says that it says the earnest prayer of a righteous person. The earnest prayer of a righteous person. Please don't substitute the word righteous for the word perfect because you don't have to be perfect to be righteous. You don't have to be perfect for God to hear 
what's coming out of your mouth directed towards him. The word righteous literally describes it is I am in, I'm conforming to God's own being, his will, his standard, his righteousness. I am standing upright and conforming to him. Not necessarily that everything that I do is right, but that my heart's desire is to conform to what is right. And by conforming to what is right, now I am labeled a righteous person. And by being a righteous person and praying with power, now the rest of that verse, he says, this this righteous person praying earnestly and with power produces wonderful results. And so when I walk with God and when I make the decision to follow him and abandon myself, because here's what you have to understand. We, we all talk about this, but it's, it's something that we fail to live out oftentimes is this, 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 this phrase of, da- this phrase of this idea of daily repentance, we think, I ask God to forgive me and come into my heart. I'm good. Everything's set. My path is set. I'm going to heaven. God bless everybody. It's good to see you. I'll see you on the flip side. Let me get out of here. But that's really not what that means. The idea of salvation is three parts. It's both past, it's present, and it's future. It's I have been saved, I will be saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. That's the whole idea of salvation and the journey of righteousness, is I have been made right, I am being made right, and I will be made right. And so that's a continuous journey that we take, not just something we confess one time. And so to be righteous means I'm going to repent. So what's the the word repent means? It means I'm going to literally turn from my ways. Anybody ever heard that conversation and said, oh, wow, that person made a complete 360? Yeah, that's the wrong turn. Because 360 means I went this way, this way, this way, this way. Oh, and I'm back in the same direction that I was going. Instead, the word repent literally means to turn from sin this direction, turn my back on it and walk away from it, never to be going back to it again. That's what repentance is. Not, I'm sorry I got caught. Not I'm sorry that, oh, you know, I did something, or I said some things, and I got called out by my pastor, or I got called out by my wife, or I got called out by my husband, I got called out by my children. Your children will call you out. Anybody ever have their child call them out on some decisions in the way they've said some things? Oh, yeah. Let them be raised in church a little while. Watch what happens. Somehow they end up knowing more than we do. And then they call it out. They're like, wait a minute, you know what? Or here's what I like. This is what happens in my house. Be very careful when, when, if, you, if you ever decide you want to preach from this thing, okay? Whether that means you stand up front in front of 50, 60, 100 people, 500 people and preach the gospel as a pastor, or you lead a small group, or you t- take and study it as a, as a family, and you open the Bible. If you begin to open this Bible and you begin to declare it to someone else's hearing, be very careful, Number one, there's a, there's a standard of which God's going to expect you to live. You'll be held accountable for what you say based on this. But let's not even talk about that. Let's talk about the flesh for a minute. I will preach something and then from time to time go home and not necessarily actually look a lot like what I preached. And I will hear it. It could be my 15-year-old daughter saying, well, Dad, didn't you just preach this? Or my wife well, that's not what you just preached today. Ooh. Yes, it is. It does. It builds character, great character. 
But here's the reality. Repentance means I am turning this way and I'm walking away from my sin to never pick it back up, to never willfully go in that again. But unfortunately, what most people say is, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. And if I have the opportunity to do it again and hide it better, I will. That's the reality of what we do. See, no one's shouting me down because they know it's like, man, is he walking in my living room right now? So there's a righteous life that God's expecting us to live in order for these wonderful results that he is talking about. And these results that he's talking about produces wonderful results. It's these, here's what this means. It's great in quantity and extent. That's what that means. These wonderful results means it's great in quantity, meaning there's going to be a lot of good results. But it's great to the extent that, man, did you see what God just did? And as this relates to healing and relates to the things that we have prayed for, and here's, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be real. This is just, this is just, this is just me and who I am and how I am and how I know to be. We pray selfishly. Not necessarily always a bad thing. We pray for a loved one to be healed and we fervently pray and we worship and we seek God and that person's not healed and then we somehow get angry and frustrated with God because that person wasn't healed. And, and I get it. I get, I get the flesh of that. I get the reason why that is. And I don't, I don't, I don't condemn that nor knock that because I understand that. But here's the, the reality and the truth is that all of these things are subject to God's sovereignty. It's subject to what he desires. You know, and I think about things like that and I think about my family. And I think about loved ones that I have lost. And my first thought goes to my 37-year-old uncle who lived a life completely apart from Christ. Drug, ad- drug addict, alcoholic, just all kinds of, and every imaginable issue that comes with that kind of lifestyle is what his life was. And at 37 years old, he gave his life to Christ. And within weeks of giving his life to Christ and becoming on fire for God, he died of a massive heart attack in his living room in his lounge chair. And you would think, that's just ridiculous. This guy lived this a crazy, ridiculous life. God saved him, and then he dies? Well, what glory is there in that? And that was a question that one of my family members asked me. And I said, you know what? I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I don't know. First of all, I don't have all the answers. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way quickly. I don't have all the answers. But I just don't know. I don't, know, I don't know why God does the things that he does. And, and, and according to the book of Daniel, hate to say this, it's not even my place to ask him why. If, if you want to be real about it, it's not even my place to ask him why. Matter of fact, you can't find in scripture anywhere God says, ask me why, it's okay. Matter of fact, he says the contrary. It's not, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and it's no place of yours to ask me why I do anything, according to the book of Daniel. So now, now I'm faced with all kinds of issues because I ask why a lot, and I'm like, man, why? Or why my grandfather, who is an idol of mine, a hero of mine, and I remember the day because we were moving into this auditorium, and I was up there in that little scaffolding area up there with a friend, and we were setting up the projector in this room, and I got the call that my, it was my grandfather's birthday, and I had just texted him that morning to say, happy birthday, Pop-Pop, and I get the call to say that he died. And I was like, 
Do what? I just prayed with my grandfather not long before that, and he accepted Christ in his 70s, and he died on his 80th birthday. Why? I don't. So to, so to answer that question, I don't understand all the ways of God. But I do understand there are certain things that are important in our lives if we want to see God move on our behalf. And in healing, that's critical. God hears the prayers, the fervent if you want to look at a different version of the Bible, the fervent, effective prayers of the righteous availeth much, meaning they accomplish great things. That produces wonderful results, goes on to say, for the believer, this refers to God strengthening them with the combative, confrontive force to achieve all that he gives them faith for. I'm going to read that again because... For the believer, this produces wonderful results means this. It refers to God strengthening them with combative and confrontive force to achieve all he gives them faith for. All who gives who faith for? All he gives you faith for. See, we have this misconceived idea that faith comes from me. But it comes from him. The level, the measure in which of faith I have is, comes from him and comes from my direct connection with him. Because faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing what? The Word of God. So my suggestion would be that if you're not in a position, in a posture where you're hearing the Word of God regularly, your faith might not be in a place where you can expect to see God move supernaturally. I mean, we want that, but do we really? So that's just a little bit of that portion of Scripture so that you can understand that there is an absolutely a connection between how we live our lives and how God hears our prayer. There's a connection between the two. And so as we talk about this, I'm going to get back into the idea of this, this healing that we talk about. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes, and then I'm going to talk about God's, God's blueprint plan for extreme faith, if that's okay with you guys this morning. And so here's, here's what I understand. There's a lot of approaches, and there's a lot of teaching on healing. And I'm not here to give you doctrine or a specific theology on healing. I'm here to point out a couple of approaches and then allow you to think of your thoughts and, and your approach. But several approaches to the subject many times seem very good and they're close to the truth. And unfortunately in our society, close to the truth has become acceptable. But it's just not all the way true. It's kind of like the lie of omission. Well, I didn't lie. Well, no, you didn't lie, but you just didn't tell the whole story neither. So let's talk about the whole story. So let's talk about the whole story. So there's, a pro there's an approach out there which I will call, and this is in your notes, one of the blanks in your notes, the first one in your notes says, it's the personal gain approach. This is the personal gain approach approach, or what I will call the sensationalist would approach it this way. And, and it's people who use the gospel as a platform to gain personal glory. For example, this is going to sound harsh, and I'm not judging. I'm just, maybe I am judging. I don't know. If I am, God will hook me up, take care of me, and tell me. But here's the reality. When you, when you have a worldwide ministry or you have ministry that is effective on TV and you hear phrases like, for your donation, 
your suggested donation of $40, I will send you this cloth that was anointed with oil so that you can then lay that on the person who is in need and God is going to make something happen. That is a sensationalist approach. That is a personal glory gain approach because they're using the gospel and the truth for personal gain. I want your $40 for some anointed piece of cloth of which I could take a t-shirt out of my closet, rip it to pieces, dip it in some olive oil, pray over it, and it does the same thing. But ain't nobody giving me 40 bucks for it. That's the personal gain approach to healing. Yes, I know if any of you grew up on Christian television and if you maybe wrote that check for 40 bucks one time, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying this person, these people are out for personal gain. They're focused on the emotion more than they're focused on the spirit. Because if I can connect, it's, it's, it's sales 101. Prior to being a pastor of a church, I have been in sales for about 12 years. I would sell. Some people suggest that pastors are salesmen too. But the reality is, sales 101 is how can I make an emotional connection with you, with what I'm trying to sell you. And it's not a bad thing, unless, of course, you're trying to sell someone a $40 piece of junk that says it's going to heal you. But it's, I'm trying to make an emotional connection. I, I, I recently, most of you, a lot of you know this, not everybody, but I recently took a job. I'm now bivocational. I, I work, I'm the marketing director at Chick-fil-A. And, and we, our desire is to make an emotional connection with you at Chick-fil-A so that you will desire to come and eat there. And there are people who come all the time because they've connected with other people. It's good food, but they've connected with other people, and that's what draws them. There's an emotional connection. So this sensationalist or this personal gain approach does the same thing. Matter of fact, Jesus even spoke of this. When in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, he said, In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. Advanced case of leprosy meant he was hopeless. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Let me tell you something. When God heals you, when God performs a miraculous thing like in this case of this leper, people know. How do they know? Because homeboy's skin was not falling off anymore. He didn't have sores all over his body anymore. He was healed, and you could look and visually see, man, this guy has been healed. It doesn't need all the emotional to do and, the, and, and to stand up and, and let me shout. I mean, testimony is one thing, but let me, let me tell you, these peop, a lot of people will suggest I've been healed, and now you do exactly what I did, you'll be healed too. And, and that's not the case. Because God's sovereignty and his ways are not our ways. And if we think that we can just duplicate something to make something happen, then we're foolish and fooling ourselves into thinking that this may work. And actually, we become idolaters to something rather than worshipers of the king. So there's that, there's that sensationalist approach, that personal gain approach. I mean, Jesus said, don't tell anybody. 
Because if you tell somebody, if you tell everybody, if you go around telling everybody, then everybody's going to want, want you to then be there. Well, it worked for you, so you must have some magical thing about your life. Then there's the, what I call the name it and claim it approach. The name it and claim it approach. Thinking God is some kind of heavenly Santa Claus. That if you sit on his lap and tell him what you want for Christmas, that you're going to magically find it under your tree. We treat God the same way. We say, well, I want this, so I should have it. I, in the name of Jesus, I claim that I am not sick. Now, there's a, there's a fine line. You got to be careful. And I'm walking the fine line right now with some of y'all's faith, and it's okay. There's a fine line between speaking things that aren't as though they are and naming and claiming what, you, what belongs to you. Because it's obvious that God's desire is to heal, but yet not everyone is healed. It's not on this earth. It's obvious that it's his desire for everyone to be made whole, but we think it should be here. God's suggestion is it can be anywhere. It can be here. It can be next week. It can be next month. It can be next year. It can be up here in heaven. It can be anywhere. We put the thought process that it has to be here so we start naming it and claiming it and grabbing onto it. We find this more prevalently in our financial situation. And you see people say, you don't need to settle for that car. God got, God got a Lexus for you. Come on. And you start to hear preaching like that. Oh, you live in a one-bedroom apartment with your five siblings? God's got a mansion for you. It's down the street. Not the one in heaven. It's the one down the street. You just drive down that neighborhood and you look at that house and you say, in the name of Jesus, that's my house. Let me tell you something. That's what James was talking about when he talked about false gospels, false preaching. That's what Paul was talking about when he instructed Timothy to say, that's false gospel, that's false preaching. Because that's not a biblical approach to anything. You can't name and claim anything. Last I read, God owns everything. It's not mine. My prayer is simple. It's, 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 I, I try to be humble about it as often as I can, but my prayer is simple. God, you said you own a cattle on a thousand hill. Would you mind selling one or two so I can pay my light bill? Y'all laugh, but that's, that's how I pray. He owns everything. My acknowledgement is that he owns everything, and I deserve nothing. So I just say, God, you own it all. You know, I got a mortgage to pay. You know, I got kids that need some food and need some clothes. I got a kid who got no clothes. No winter, no winter clothes. I just realized they all grew too tall. It's like, oh, well, God, you got it all. I need, I need a little bit. Sell me a, sell a cow so I can go buy some pants for my kid. You all think it's funny, but it's for real. It's taking a posture of understanding whose it all is and whose I am, and I got to ask him for it. And he gives it to me because what does a good father do? Gives good gifts. In case you didn't know, that's in the Bible too. But then we have this name and claim and approach. Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And so we think that because he hears us, that we can have whatever we want. I don't want this job. I don't like my boss. I want a new job. I don't like my house. I want that house. I want that car. I want my neighbor's car. I want my neighbor's life. You can't name and claim someone else's life and stuff. You want something, go work hard for it. 
And if God so sees it fit, he'll give it to you. The last fill in the blank there on that, well, not the last one, but the last approach that, I, that you can find in, in, in this world today is this, what I'll call this new wave approach. This new wave approach. It can also, if you want to use a big word, it can be the dispensationalist approach. Meaning that this approach says God did miracles then, but today healing ministry, it's shut down. The great physician has closed up shop. And because they can't explain it, then they limit God down to no longer being able to do it. Same suggestion they make when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the gifts that that was old, that was then, that's not now. And here's the reality when someone like that is faced with the fact that they've seen a miraculous God move, now they are perplexed and don't understand because everything that they knew said that that doesn't happen any longer. And because things we cannot rationalize in our brains, and I said this last week, that if I can rationalize all the things of God in this little bitty brain that I have, that's a God not worth worshiping if I'm being honest with you. Because if I can figure it all out, what do I need him for? And so this, this, this idea of healing, matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 9 says, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the examples of their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace, not from the rules about food, which don't help those who follow him. This was a teaching about what is and is not okay to eat. But he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let me just tell you something. If he healed yesterday, he'll heal today. He will heal tomorrow. If he gave folks the gifts of prophecy yesterday, he will today. He will tomorrow. All this dispensationalism that says God stopped working then and he's working different now, eh, not biblical, not scriptural. And there's no, there's no evidentiary proof of it. So, how, so God still heals today. And just because in your personal situation you may not have seen God heal your way, he still heals. So what approach should I have? It's very simple. It's called the biblical approach. Hebrews 11.6 says it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's that word earnest again. Earnestly seek him. But it doesn't work. Well, I, I, I sought God, but I, I, I didn't see what, what I wanted to see, so it must not work. See, that's where faith then kicks in. What is faith? Faith is a substance of things hoped for, right? It's the evidence of things you cannot see. That's faith. Describe faith for me. That's my, that's my response. Uh, it's something I hope for, I cannot see, that most people will say, man, you're just dumb. Reality is, today, in order to truly see God move in our lives, especially in, in the realms of faith, is we have to have faith that looks like scripture. Not this manufactured name it and claim it faith, not this I want what I want faith, but faith that looks more like scripture. And James is the one who gives us the image of what that faith looks like. 
So what is this blueprint plan that God has for extreme faith? It's found in the last few verses of James chapter 5. When he spoke of another person's life. Elijah was as human as we are. Yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky went down, sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. He says in verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. He's referring to Elijah's life. And this is what we find in Elijah's life. Number one, but as it comes to the blueprint plan for extreme faith, number one, extreme faith begins with a promise. Extreme faith begins with a promise. Let's look at Elijah's life. First Kings chapter 17. The Bible says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. There's the promise. He told the people, There will be no rain until I have said so. So here's what you can claim. You cannot lay claim to someone else's house, but you can lay claim to the promises that God has in Scripture. Because he said, to every promise that I have given you, they are yes and amen. Which means yes, which we all know what yes means. Amen literally means so be it. So let it be as you have said. So that's what you can lay claim to. You can lay claim to the promises of God. And so extreme faith begins with a promise. Isaiah 55 said this. It is the same with the word, with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. That is the promise of God. So you want, so here, what does that look like then for my faith? He says, in the same way with my word, I send it out, it will always produce fruit to accomplish what I want it to do, want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Well, then you begin to speak the word of God. Because if it's going to go out and it's going to accomplish what I want it to accomplish, then it, I should be speaking it. Because it's then going to accomplish, it's going to bear fruit. Not speaking my new wave ideas, not speaking my thoughts or what I desire, but speaking the word of God, and I'm going to begin to see things happen. So I begin to speak the promises of God. Number two, extreme faith never gives up. Never gives up. Extreme faith never gives up. Going back to Elijah in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 43, because if James talked about Elijah in his context of faith, it's important to understand this. And so 1 Kings 18, 43 to 44, Bible says, then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked. Then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go, go and look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud above the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. See, sometimes we lose our persistence and we give up. Seven times Elijah sent him out. Seven times he had to go out to see. Elijah saw it. He saw it already, and he sent his servant seven times he had to go to see it. We give up after one or two times. Oh, that God thing didn't work for me because, you know, I tried it for six days. Or, you know, that faith and prayer thing, it really didn't work. I didn't see anything change in the first 
month. Let me tell you, there are people that I know that have been praying for family members and friends for 20, 30, and 40 years and still staying faithful to the prayer, still staying faithful to the promise. I know a woman specifically 37 years prayed for the salvation of her husband. 37 years. We won't spend 37 minutes with God, but this woman 37 years prayed for her husband to see him give his life to Christ. After 37 years, man, we got 37 minutes and our attention's already somewhere else. Or maybe 3.7 seconds for some. Sometimes we lose our persistence. Jesus even said to pray and never give up. Galatians chapter 6 Paul, reflecting what Jesus had taught him and said to him, said, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we just don't give up. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we just don't give up. Man, when I was, how much time do I have? Okay, I gotta move. So when I was, when we planted this church, it, 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 it took a huge leap of faith for my wife and I to even venture into doing this. And when we did, one of the things that I did is I went and traveled from place to place to place to place. And I preached in different churches and just, yeah, just casting vision, hoping maybe somebody would want to support, help support us or somebody would want to come and help work with us or whatever the case may be. And I preached the same message everywhere I went. It changed because that's just the way that I am. I never preached it the same twice. But I preached this message, and I referenced Moses and the promised land. And so I'm going to give you this, the highlighted version of it very quickly. Okay, so we know Moses was given the promise by God that he was going to take his people into the promised land. We also know that Moses was disobedient to God along the journey multiple times. Yet he was still being led to this place. And then ultimately... He submitted to the, to the people, or the Israel people, a vote. Do we go into the promised land or do we stay here? They were too scared of what they did not know, so they chose to stay where they were. And this was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back type thing. Because God would then not allow a single person from that generation that he brought out of bondage in Egypt to inherit the promised land. That it was Joshua, who Moses had raised up, who was filled with faith who said that we can take the land. Yeah, it's full of giants. Yeah, it's got this, but you know what? We can take it because God's going to give us the victory. And so here's what happened. Moses died in a place that literally means the edge of promise. The translated Hebrew word means the edge of promise. Joshua, when he died, he died in a place, and he was buried in a place that literally translated in the Hebrew meant the middle of God's will. So there is a difference between having the faith to be obedient to God and submit to God and never giving up because the reality is as great as a giant of faith as Moses is, he gave up. He gave up not because he quit, but because he stopped being obedient. God said, speak to the rock. And he decided to beat the rock rather than speaking to the rock. This is all stuff for you to go ahead and study if you like on your own. But there is a reality of, of, of persistence that takes place. And in this journey of the promised land, what did they have to, they, had, they encountered Jericho with fortified walls that they could not break down. And the instruction was to march around them, march around them. And on the seventh day, march around seven times and then shout, not even take the battle, but just shout 
that's just nuts. If I'm a leader and I'm told by God, tell my people to march around these walls seven times and at the end of the seven times start screaming, I'm going to think something's wrong with me. But that's what he did, and his obedience led him to taking Jericho, and then land after land after land after land, he inherited the promise of God because he never gave up. The third and final blank in your sheet as I begin to wrap this up this morning is that extreme faith unlocks the supernatural. Extreme faith unlocks the supernatural. So extreme faith begins with a promise. It never gives up. And it unlocks the supernatural. God never intended for you to be a human experience having a temporary spiritual being. Let me say that again. God never intended you to be a human experience having a temporary spiritual being. But rather, he intended for you to be a spiritual being having a temporary human experience. See, we flip it the other way. We have this human experience, and we think that the supernatural of God is the temporary. It's the sometimes. It's the occasional. God's intention is for it to be the norm, and that your human experience be the sometime, the occasional, the short part of this life. We are called to be a spiritual being, a supernatural being, having a temporary natural experience. 1 Kings chapter 18, back to the story with Elijah. He says, as soon as the sky was black with clouds, a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Why does that matter? Because faith goes beyond what you can comprehend in your mind. In this context, Elijah spoke and said, there be no rain And then when he spoke again, not only did the rain come, but it came in a dangerous thunderstorm. It came with the power of God. You spoke something into existence. Now watch the supernatural power of God begin to move. And it was so harsh and so rough that they had to run all the way back to this city. And God gave Elijah this special strength that he tucked his cloak and outran a horse. Tell me that's not a supernatural God doing something that just blows the mind of someone. That's the God that we serve. God operates in a dimension that's not restricted by time and space. See, we we put God in this place and he's restricted by time. He's restricted by space. But he works outside of that. He works outside of dimension. He works outside of time. He works outside of space. In the beginning, he just was. Where did he come from? It doesn't matter because he just was. In our mind, we have to know where he came from because that's space. No, he just existed. And he spoke everything into existence. Matter of fact, a great video. If you want to watch a great video, watch a great video. And and Google it because I can't remember the dude's name. But time, space, matter, Christianity. Time, space, matter, Christianity. Or time, space, matter, testimony. And you'll find this guy who shares this idea, and, and I ripped off the idea of if I can rationalize God in my three-pound brain, then he's not worth worshiping because he said that first. But what he says is powerful. We relegate God to what we can conceive in our mind, and because we do that, we miss what he's actually trying to do because he works outside of that. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, It is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. 
Can I just tell you in the original Greek language, the word everything? You ready? This is powerful. It literally means everything. (laughs) Not some things, not a few things. It means everything, all of it. It is all possible with God. Sean, if you can come, just play for us in the background as I begin to wrap this up. I'm going to share an illustration. Thank you, Devin. Anybody ever been rock climbing before? You ever strapped the harness on? You know, you've got this, this, this D-ring, that the, that the, this carabiner that the rope is fed through, and you strap this harness on. And it's one thing, I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I did some repelling and Standing on the edge of this, I've, done, I've repelled off of buildings and cliffs, and I'm standing on the edge of this building, and I'm looking down, and I'm like six stories up, and I'm like, man, that's a long way down. I got this harness, a carabiner, and a rope, and I'm supposed to jump off of this thing and then kind of push off the wall, go down, push off the wall, go down, push off the wall, go down until I'm down. That's just nuts. I mean, it's one thing to put all that gear on, and I wish I had the gear to illustrate it, but it's one thing to put all that gear on. It's a whole thing. Bring that down just a little bit, please, guys. Dave, bring that down just a little bit, please. It's one thing to put all that gear on. It's a whole nother thing to stand on the edge of the building and jump off. See, faith is my confession that I love Jesus. God is the author and perfecter of my faith that the Holy Spirit has filled me and continues to fill me and it's faith is coming I'm, I'm declaring my faith and I'm declaring whose I am and but that's not where faith stops faith actually becomes extreme when you get to the edge of the building and say I'm ready to jump and then you jump and what do you know You know that this harness that you've put on and this carabiner that you have and this rope that you're repelling down is what is keeping you from crashing to your death. God is that harness. God is that rope. God is that carabiner. He is the one who's keeping you. When you, every step of faith you take that's taken blindly, he's the one who's keeping you in that, in that moment. So there's a story about a mountain climber desperate to conquer a huge mountain. He initiated his climb after years and years of preparation. But he wanted all this glory for himself. He didn't want to share it. So he went up alone. He started climbing and it was becoming later and later. And he hadn't prepared to camp, but decided to keep going. Soon it got dark, night fell, the visibility was zero, everything was black, there was no moon, and the stars were covered by clouds. And as he was climbing a ridge about 300 feet from the top, he slipped and fell. Falling rapidly, he could only see blotches of darkness that passed, and He felt a terrible sensation of being sucked in by gravity and he kept falling and falling and falling. And in those anguishing moments, good and bad memories passed through his mind. He thought certainly he would die. But then he felt a jolt that almost tore him in half. 
Yes, like any good mountain climber, he had staked himself with a long rope tied to his waist in those moments of stillness. Suspended in the air, he had no other choice but to shout, help me, God. All of a sudden, he heard a deep voice from heaven. What do you want me to do? He replied, save me. He said, do you really think that I can save you? He says, of course, my God. He said, then cut the rope that is holding you up. There was another moment of silence and stillness. The man just held tighter to the rope, refusing to let it go. Cut the rope that is holding you up. The rescue team says the next day they found a frozen mountain climber hanging strongly to a rope. Frozen to death. Two feet from the ground. We have this thought. That I'm actually in control. But extreme faith says, I will jump off this building and I will know that my God will catch me. Nothing great has ever been accomplished in life without taking a step and having no clue where it would lead you. Nothing great in life. And God's plan for you is nothing short of greatness. In this journey of life, you will lose loved ones and it will pierce you with the deepest parts of your hearts. But faith says, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to trust in your plan not only for me, but for the person I lost. I'm going to trust you, Lord, not only for me, but for my family. I'm going to trust you, Lord, not only for them, but for everyone that you have called me to impact. I'm going to trust you. 